wanted to make, and that is that Easter soon, and uh, I understand there is a sign-up sheet on the back table for those who are going to be attending uh, the breakfast earlier in the morning. Uh, we will most likely have a sign-up sheet for items to bring uh, in the, another week or two, but uh, you can sign up so we know how many people to plan for. As the church continues to grow, which is exciting, we, uh, we have to make sure we have enough seats available downstairs and uh, tables set up and all of that. So uh, please sign up if you're planning to come, and, uh, and we'll make plans for that. It would be wonderful. Let me go ahead and pray. I, I noticed the clock says 9 o'clock, so I've got like two hours. So, um, no, I, I promise I won't uh, abuse that. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Gracious Father, thank you that we have the opportunity this morning to lift our voices together as the body of Christ here in this place. And that there are many of our brothers and sisters around our community, our country, and our world who are doing the same thing this day. And you are receiving all of that as a sweet aroma in your presence. We get to join in on that. And what a privilege it is. How great it is to remind ourselves through the words of these songs of just who you are. You are holy. And you are righteous. You are worthy of our praise. Lord, I'm mindful of the fact that many of us come into this place today with, lot, with lots of different thoughts. <laughs> Maybe the distractions of this past week and the circumstances that we find ourselves in presently are weighing on our minds and our hearts. How good it is to come and to lay our burdens at Your feet. To remind ourselves and one another of just who You are. And to focus our attention this morning upon you, the one who has the answers to our problems, the one who is the answer to our ultimate problem of sin, who has accomplished our salvation, and who reminds us through his word of where our focus needs to be. This morning, we turn our attention to your word, and we ask that you would Help us to hear you today. Lord, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many parents in our day and age, and maybe this was true of you, when, when our children are little, we teach them the bedtime prayer that starts, Now I lay me down to sleep. Right? And, uh, and I understand that in ancient Israel, they taught their children a bedtime prayer as well. Many of them taught them Psalm 31, verse 5, which says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. They would pray that as they drifted off to sleep. Not only was that the bedtime prayer of many in Israel, this was one of the very last things that Jesus said before he breathed his last on the cross of Calvary. Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And since that time, I understand that there were many in church history 
who also in their moments before they passed, many of whom were martyred for their faith, would also utter these words. Men like St. Bernard and John Huss, Jerome of Prague, Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, and many others, who in their dying moments, the last thing they spoke were the same words that Jesus said in his last moments. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This morning as we take a look at this sixth of the seven sayings from the cross, we see that it teaches us something about Jesus. And that is that Jesus is a trusting son. Jesus trusted his father even in his most agonizing moments. Even after he has just experienced three hours of the Father's wrath poured against him because of you and me and our sin. Even in that moment, knowing full well that it was the Father's will and and. Uh, uh, determination that he be on that cross. He spoke these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust you, even in this. Jesus is a trusting son. Would you please open your Bible to Luke chapter 23 as we examine these words of Jesus. Luke chapter 23. I want to read verses 44 to 46. But before we do that, let me remind you of kind of where we are in this, in this story. We re, you recall that Jesus was crucified at the third hour of the day, which was 9 o'clock in the morning. And for those first three hours from 9 a.m. to noon, Jesus hung on that cross, and he was mocked, he was ridiculed by those who were there, told, if you are the Son of God, come off the cross. And even one of the thieves said, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Christ, come down and, and, and get us off too. And it was in those first three hours that Jesus spoke the first three sayings from the cross. His first he lifted up his prayer to the Father on behalf of all those responsible for his being there. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't understand what they are participating in. And then, not long after that, he had this brief conversation with one of the thieves who expressed his trust, his faith in Jesus. By saying, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then there was the third saying where he was speaking with his earthly mother, Mary, and, and his disciple John. When he said to her, woman, behold your son, and to him, behold your mother. He was caring for his mother's needs, even as he was about to die. And then we come to the sixth hour. Noon, and we read these words in Luke 23, 44 through 46. And it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell 
over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sun being obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. From this sixth hour to the ninth hour, from noon until 3 p.m., two miraculous events took place. Let's talk about those briefly before we get into the thing that Jesus spoke. The first was that darkness fell over the whole land. We talked about this before, but let me just remind us. Here we have the sun shining at its brightest at high noon. And darkness fell over the whole land for three hours. This would have been God's clear and undeniable message to the average person in the land that something miraculous was taking place during those three hours. Something out of the ordinary was going on. John MacArthur says this about what was going on. He said, God arrived in the blackness of Calvary on that day. To unleash judgment. Not in an eschatological sense against the ungodly, but in a soteriological sense against his son. In other words, not in a, in a futuristic sense of God will bring judgment upon all who reject Christ, all the ungodly in that sense, but no in a salvation sense, a soteriological sense, unleashed against his own son. He goes on to say, God brought the outer darkness of hell to Jerusalem that day as he unleashed on Jesus Christ the full extent of his wrath against the sins of all who would ever be saved. We believe that it was during those last three hours when darkness came upon the whole land that Jesus paid in full the debt for our sins and satisfy the righteous wrath of God against, against us, against sin. And that opened the door for us to have a relationship with God. Which brings us to that second miraculous event that he mentions here in verse 45, and that is that the veil in the temple was ripped in two. You'll recall that in the temple there was the holy place and then there was the holy of holies which is where the Ark of the Covenant was which represented the presence of God and there was a veil that separated the two. And most believe that it was that veil that was separated torn from top to bottom in these moments, at the end of that three hours of darkness, this would have been God's clear and undeniable message to the priests and the religious leaders that something miraculous was taking place during these three hours. This very well may have been the reason why we see in the book of Acts some of the priests came to, to believe in Jesus after the resurrection. 
but certainly some deny, even with such an incredible, miraculous sign from God. One commentator explained this event this way. Into this holiest of all, that is referring to the Holy of Holies, none might enter but even the high priest, save once a year, on the great day of atonement. And then only with the blood of atonement in his hands, which he sprinkled upon and before the mercy seat seven times, to signify that access for sinners to a holy God is only through atoning blood. But now, the one atoning sacrifice being provided in the precious blood of Christ, access to this holy God could no longer be denied. And so the moment that Christ expired on the altar, that thick veil which for so many ages had been the dread symbol of separation between God and guilty men, was without a hand touching it mysteriously and miraculously rent in twain from top to bottom. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was now made manifest. How emphatic the statement from top to bottom, as if to say, come boldly now to the throne of grace. The veil is clean gone. The mercy seat stands open to the gaze of sinners and the way to it sprinkled with the blood of him who through the eternal spirit hath offered himself without spot to God. Before, it was death to go in. Now, it is death to stay out. In this event, the writer of Hebrews writes this, in light of this event. Hebrews 10, 19-25 Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, which is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Let us come with confidence knowing that the veil has been removed. The way to God has been opened through Jesus the Christ and the sacrifice He made. The punishment that He paid. And now we can come with confidence, with boldness to the throne to have a relationship with God. What an incredible thing that God has done for us. That's what these signs point to. The darkness is the judgment of God poured out on His Son. The veil was rent in two so that all could come. Not just the high priest once a year. The Passover lamb, the perfect Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
And it is unto us to apply the blood. Just as they had to apply the blood of the Passover lamb to the door uh, posts so that the, the angel of death would, death would pass over them that night. So we too must take and apply the blood of Jesus Christ to the doorposts of our lives so that the angel of death would pass over us. And we do that by placing our trust in Jesus as our Savior. Jesus expressed His trust in the Father as He hung on the cross. After He has now paid the price, He knows the only thing left for Him to do is to breathe His last breath and enter into what God has for Him, the Father has for Him. And so He says, Father, into Thy hands I commit my spirit. What we learn from this is that Jesus entrusted Himself into the Father's hands. Into the Father's hands. This idea of God's hands is an interesting one to study through Scripture. But the hands of God in Scripture represent His sovereign power. We see this through many Scriptures. Let me just mention a few. Job 19.21, when Job is... is Interacting with his friends, and they are, he's, he's now covered in boils, and he's, he's suffering physically, and, he's, and his friends are telling him that he must have done something wrong to invoke the, the wrath of God in this way, and he's, he's, they're back and forth, and he says this in Job 19.21, Pity me, pity me, O my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. sovereign power of God is upon me for my harm, he says. Hebrews 10.31, the writer of Hebrews says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For anyone outside of Jesus Christ, outside of the blood of Christ covering their life, it is a, a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the almighty sovereign power of God. But then we also read in Acts chapter 11, 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number believed and turned to the Lord. It is the sovereign hand of God that brings judgment upon those who reject Christ. It is the sovereign hand of God that rescues sinners and leads them to himself. It is God's sovereignty. What is sovereignty? It is God's absolute and complete control. Jay Bridges in his book, Trusting, Trusting God, defines it this way. His absolute independence to do as he pleases and his absolute control over the actions of all his creatures. Control. God does what he pleases. God does what he wills. And he is in complete control. This is the hand of God, the sovereign power of God at work. And Jesus, through his words here, expresses his ultimate trust. These words of Jesus represent <clears throat> his ultimate trust. Into your hand, 
into your sovereign power. I commit my spirit, he says. And again, as I mentioned, this is a quote from Psalm 31, verse 5, which is a psalm about trusting in the Lord. Just as when he cried, my, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, was a quotation of Psalm 22, which is a psalm about uh, when David wrote about the Messiah who would come, and he describes crucifixion. And Jesus quotes that psalm, making the application. Here we see the same kind of thing. He cries out, using the scriptures to give voice to what he wants to say, making the connection for those who knew the psalm. It was about trusting in the Lord. Jesus used the scriptures to pray. What a great example for us. To go to the scriptures to find voice for our prayer. To help us to, to make sense of what we're going through and to lift our, our prayer to God in light of all that we're going through. Another interesting uh, thing we see in the text here about this is that all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all mention that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Which is significant. Because typically a person in the last stages of crucifixion did not have the strength to speak in a loud voice. They could barely eke out a weak groan. Which tells us that Jesus was still strong enough to last for a long time to come on the cross. And yet, it was in this moment that he breathed his last. Which tells us Jesus was still in control. And that Jesus chose to give himself into the hands of the Father. He willingly gave himself up in that moment. The other thing that I think is interesting to keep in mind is that at any point in all of this, Jesus could have gotten off the cross. You know, we sang a little earlier, it was my sin that held him there. It wasn't the nails. He could have done exactly what they said for him to do. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Christ, come down from here, show us. He could have. But he didn't. While he was experiencing for three hours the wrath of the Father against him because of our sin, at any point during that time, he had the power to say, enough, I'm done. They're not worth it. didn't because you are to him worth it and so he cried out for all to hear father I trust you into your hands I commit my spirit several years ago I put into my file a, a, a devotional that uh, Dr. Joe Stoll wrote while he was the president of Moody Bible Institute. He, he writes a, a, about a, a student that was at the school. He says this, he was barely into his 20s. 
a year and a half into his studies here at Moody when the doctor told him that he had cancer. Alan Rosenfeld had been rescued by redemption from a tough life on the streets of New York City. Being burdened for New York, he committed himself to preparing to go back and share the power that had changed his life so dramatically. His Jewish adoptive parents had not only rejected him when his lifestyle was so embarrassing, but disowned him when he found Christ as his personal Messiah. Hearing that Alan had cancer, they again told him not to come home. Friends on another, in another city welcomed him into their home while he received medical care. A year and a half later, he lay on his deathbed, barely able to speak. When the hospital chaplain walked in, Alan said, I'm too young to die. What do you tell people when they're dying? The chaplain shuffled some papers on the table and stumbled through something about prayer and comfort. And Alan mustered the strength to tell him about his trust in God and the finished work of Jesus Christ. The chaplain listened attentively and said, maybe you need to pray for me rather than me pray for you. He goes on to say, Alan's testimony of salvation is an amazing story of God's grace. But it's even more amazing to think that someone could go through agonizing pain and rejection and still trust the one whose sovereign plan had, uh, had dictated the course of his distress. Right? God could have stopped the cancer. God could have prevented him from getting it. But God allowed cancer to come into this young man's life and to take him out at a young age. He said, maybe Alan learned something from his Lord as Christ hung on the cross and finally uttered his last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The striking reality about this statement is the, is the context in which Christ uttered these words. As with Alan, Christ was going through a horrendous experience that was mandated and directed by his Father in heaven. Only a few hours earlier, Christ had labored emotionally, spiritually, and physically, pleading for an alternate way to accomplish the Father's plan. But ultimately, he yielded in obedience, saying, not my will, but yours be done. And he entered into this sovereignly assigned passage of pain, unflinching in his confidence in God. He trusted in the sovereign power and plan of God, the Father. Even in His greatest hour of need, in His greatest moment of agony, knowing full well this was at the hand of His Father. But He knew it was for a purpose. Which leads us to where we are. Just as Jesus trusted himself into the Father's hands, we can entrust ourselves into the Father's hands. No matter what we're going through, we can trust the hand of God. We can certainly trust him for our salvation. Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand, 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What a great promise. No matter what, you are going through. No matter what you experience, no matter what you do, no matter what lie the enemy tells you, nothing can take us out of his hand. He is sovereign and holy. We can trust in God's sovereign power. We can trust. In God's sovereign power. I want you to to turn over to Psalm 31 for a moment. This psalm that Jesus quotes. Because in this psalm, it's about the trusting God. We see David, the writer of this psalm, giving us four reasons why he trusted in the Lord. In verses 6 through 8. Just after... The statement in verse 5, into thy hand I commit my spirit. You've ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Verses 6 through 8 says, I hate those who regard vain idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in thy loving kindness. Why? Because thou hast seen my affliction. Thou hast known the troubles of my soul. Thou hast given me, thou hast not given me over into the hand of the enemy. Thou hast set my feet in a large place. How wonderful for David to reflect on God in this moment and how and why he could trust the Lord no matter what he was experiencing because of these four things. And we, like Jesus, can go to the Scriptures and voice our prayer And find encouragement there as we walk through difficult times. How great it is to know that we can trust the Lord because He sees our affliction. So no matter what you are going through right now, no matter what pain, no matter what uncertainty, no matter how overwhelming it may feel, God sees that. You're not alone. And not only does He see it, He knows the troubles of your soul. He sees the circumstance you're in, but He knows what's going on inside of you. He says He knows the troubles of my soul. He knows what causes you to stay up at night. He knows what's running through your head. He knows the things you're concerned about. He knows the things you don't know, the uncertainties. And He will not give you into the hand of the enemy. He will not. He, we see in the book of Job this, this principle that, that even though Job experienced these things by the hand of Satan, it was by permission of the Father. He could do nothing to Job that God did not permit. We have the privilege of seeing into that. Job didn't. 
we can be assured that the mighty, sovereign hand of God is still in control of our lives. No matter what. And He will not let you go. He will not give you over into the hands, into the control of the enemy. But instead, will, it says, set your feet in a large place. A place of abundance. A place of stability. A place of security. Certainly we know that in the end, this is the reality. Our faith is sure in Jesus Christ. That if we have Christ as our Savior, then we know that when we breathe our last breath on this earth, our next breath is in glory with Him. He will set us in a large place. But many times, even in this life, the things we go through are temporary. And when we come out the other side, we realize that God has placed us in a large place. A place of abundance, a place of influence, a place where we have the opportunities we never had before, if only to minister to people in a way that we never could before. To be useful for, the, for God's purposes in a way that we couldn't before. God is at work accomplishing these things. And we can go to the same place that Jesus went to to find these truths that bolster our faith and our confidence in the one who holds us, the one who directs our life even when we are in the storm and we can't see anything but the dark looming clouds. We can trust our Father in heaven. Let me read for you just a few, a few sentences from uh, Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God. This is one of the most, um, over the past few years, the books that I've read, the, the most impactful book to me. Um, it's called Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. And uh, he, again, defines sovereignty as absolute independence to do as he pleases and his absolute control over all actions of all his creatures. And then he says, no creature, person, or empire can either thwart his will or act outside the bounds of his will. How encouraging it is for us in our day and age to know that no government, no uh, foreign power can thwart the purposes of God. No craziness going on in Washington can thwart the purposes of God. And then he says, if there is a single event in all the universe that can occur outside of God's sovereign control, then we cannot trust him. Because there's that one little thing in our mind. We say, well, maybe God isn't in control of that. And therefore, if that happens, we can't trust him. No, God is in control of it all. And then he says, quoting from uh, Margaret Clarkson, I don't know who she is, but he, he quotes her, and he says, that she writes this, the sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the mighty hand of our sovereign God. 
All evil is subject to him, and evil cannot touch his children unless he permits it. God is the Lord of human history and the personal history of every member of his redeemed family. How good it is to know that God knows what he's doing and God is in control. Amen? And then lastly, he says, uh, defining the providence of God. God's providence is his constant care for and his absolute rule over all his creation for his own glory and for the good of his people. God never pursues his glory. This is, this is pretty, pretty cool to think about. God never pursues his glory at the expense of the good of his people. Nor does he ever seek our good at the expense of his glory. He has designed his eternal purpose so that what his glory and our good, uh, so that his glory and our good are inextricably bound together. And so God is accomplishing his glory in all that he does. But in doing so, he is also accomplishing our best, our good. And so whatever we're walking through, we can know, based on the truth of God's word and who he is, that he is working this plan that is for our good. And it will be for his glory. How incredible. We can trust in God's sovereign power. And because we can trust it, we also can submit to God's sovereign rule. We can yield to Him because we believe that He knows what He's doing. We believe He's in control. We believe that He's working this plan out. And so we submit to God's sovereign rule. Another place we see uh, the, the, the hand of God representing God's sovereign rule and power. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, where Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. In other words, we can yield our lives into His hands. We can lay our burdens down at His feet. And we can know that He cares about what's going on. And He will care for us. And as we walk in that yieldedness, that humility before God, at His time, according to His plan and purpose, He will exalt us. It may be that He exalts us over, um, over those who are, who are causing such difficulty in our life. And it may look many different ways. It may be that, that God uh, exalts us uh, before others and gives us opportunities that we never had before. He doesn't tell us how He's going to do it. Just that He will do it in His time. And we know that when He does it, again, it will be for our good. We can trust His sovereign power. We can submit to His sovereign rule. Jesus said to His disciples 
in Luke chapter 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, <laughs> submit to God, right? humble ourselves, deny ourselves, take up our cross daily. That is, grab a hold of what this life about following Christ is all about. Not be ashamed to follow Jesus. And then he says, and follow me. Just follow me. You don't, try, you don't follow someone you don't trust. Right? Lay down your life. Just as Jesus willingly laid his life down for us, we willingly lay down our lives for him. We take up what he's given us to take up. And we follow him wherever he leads. knows what he's doing. We trust his sovereign power. We yield to his sovereign rule. Let me conclude with this little story. I don't know where it came from. I put it in my file years ago and I don't have reference to where it came from. But this, this man writes, one winter morning, the year before I started to school, before he went to elementary school, he said, my dad came in and asked if I would like to go with him to feed the cows. Well, that sounded like fun. So I dressed in my warmest clothes, including the mittens connected by a string to the sleeves of my jacket, and went out with my dad to take my place in the world of work. It was a pleasant morning. The sun was shining brightly, but it was cold, and the ground was covered with blankets of new snow. We harnessed the team, babe and blue, and we went over the hill with a wagon full of hay. And after we had found the cows and unloaded the hay for them, we started home. And my dad came with, with a great idea. Would you like to drive? <laughs> I responded in typical manly fashion, I love to drive anything. Cars, trucks, golf carts, or donkey carts. I think the attraction must be, the, must be in the power. There is such a sense of power to be in control of something larger than I am. It's good for my male ego, right? Little, little boy. I took the lines from my dad and held them looped over my hands as he showed me, and we plodded back home. I was thrilled. I was in control. I was driving. But the plodding bothered me. I decided that while I was in control, we should speed up. So I clucked the horses along, and they began to hurry. First, they began to trot, and I decided that was much better pace. We were moving along and we get home much faster. But, but Babe and Blue came up with a better idea. They decided that if we run, we'll get home even faster. So the horses went to work on their plan and began to run. And as I remember it, they were running as fast as I have ever seen horses run. But that observation might have seen, been slight an exaggeration. But they ran. The wagon bounced from mound to mound as the prairie dog holes whizzed by. And I concluded that we were in a dangerous situation. And I started to try my best to slow down this runaway team. I pulled and tugged on the lines until my hands cramped. I cried and pleaded, but nothing worked. Old babe in blue just kept on running. I glanced over at my dad. And he was just sitting there. Looking across the pasture, watching the world go by. By now, I was frantic. 
My hands were cut from the lines, and the tears streaming down my face were almost frozen to the winter with, from the winter cold. And, and, and stuff was running out of my nose, and my dad was just sitting there watching the world go by. Finally, in utter desperation, I turned to him and said as calmly as I could, Here, Daddy, I don't want to drive anymore. He writes, now that I'm older and people call me Grandpa, I reenact that scene at least once a day. Regardless of who we are and how old we are, how wise and how powerful we are, there's always that moment when our, our only response is to turn to our Father and say, here, I don't want to drive anymore. I don't know what you're facing right now, but I, I can bet that at least some of us here in this room and online are going through something and you are feeling completely out of control. And maybe you've tried everything you know how to do. You've been pulling on the reins. You've been calling out every call you can. You can't stop this thing. And the only thing you can do is say, Father, I don't want to drive anymore. And guess what? He will take the reins. He will, as you yield control, He will take control of that situation, control of your life, and He will work the plan that He has for you. You may not see anything stop. It may not change in the moment. But at least you know you're no longer in control. He's got this. And just as David said in Psalm 31, he knows what you are going through. He sees it. He knows the desperate cry of your soul. He will not abandon you into the hands of the enemy. And he will bring you out on the other side into a large place of abundance. The place He has for you. Will you trust Him? Let's pray. Would you please stand as we pray? Gracious, merciful God. We thank you that you are in control. We thank you that we are not. And the sooner we come to the realization that we are not driving this thing, you, you are, and we give the reins back to you, the sooner we can experience peace in the midst of the storm. The sooner we can find presence and in your power and in your rule over our lives. And God, again, I, I don't know who, who is in that moment right now wrestling, feeling, feeling that, that incredible anxiousness inside because they know their life's out of control. They know that they can't keep going. They can't control this and yet they're afraid. They're afraid to turn that reins over to you. 
God, you assure them in this moment. You know what you're doing. And you can be trusted. So, Father, be at work in us. Help us to learn to trust you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't we, why don't we conclude with... Uh,